Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello and welcome to another podcast. Today I'm interviewing Louise Wilson. And if you don't know Louise, she is incredibly experienced in the world of scent dogs. So she's worked with patrol dogs, explosive detection dogs, drug detection, tobacco detection, cash detection. And now she's the, I'm I'm sure a lot more by the way. And now she's the founder of Conservation Canine Consultancy. So so they consult on uh, using dogs for detection for all kinds of animals for conservation reasons, like newts and stoats. Uh, We're going to go into a lot of this in the podcast and uh, she also runs courses helping people to train their own conservation detection dogs and uh, all kinds of just amazing stuff so this is a really interesting podcast if you are at all interested in dogs in these kind of working roles getting interested in maybe uh, maybe considering going down that kind of line of work um, or yeah I mean it's just it's it's incredible to hear Louise talk and she has a really inspirational story so let's get into it Well, hey, Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Finally got me on the show. I know. I was going to say, like, you know, people don't realize, but obviously we've been talking about doing a podcast now for years and uh, it's just never really happened because I know that you're such a busy person. And obviously with COVID, I think that's, do you know what, if there's any like positive out of COVID, it's it's easier to get people to come on the podcast because people aren't (laughs) working as much. You know, no one's quite so busy something positive out of it then yeah yeah I found myself um being more available for online consultancy or podcast or interviews because normally I was I was jetting away every month um and obviously at the moment I'm not going anywhere so apart from my living room so yeah yeah well let's talk about that then you know um you know what is it that you do because it's quite a, it's quite different, isn't it, to what most people do? Yeah. Even even among dog training, I think a lot of people think that dog training is a strange profession, you know. Let alone uh, what you're up to. Yeah, so it's it's kind of got my own little niche, really. So um, obviously, I've got conservation canine consultancy, and what the the main purpose of when I set this up was to offer consultancy and dog training and handling of wildlife detection dog services. So it's using detection dogs to help with conservation, whether that's uh, looking for invasive species, endangered species, uh, low abundant species, um, and using specialist trained dogs and handlers. Um, that was the the main reason and it was to give people internationally the option of having help where they needed it um, if, if they have their own project for uh, wildlife detection for example and they've never done it before they want to know how the dog will react to certain target odors and because I've had 17 years now of working with detection dogs on so many different substance detection and training hundreds of dogs I'm lucky to have had quite a lot of experience in different kind of projects so yeah that's what I have been doing for the last uh, five years and before that I was training detection dogs for contraband and explosives and drugs and everything like that i I just this is this is why i've wanted to have you on it just gets me so excited because i've got to be honest like you you know um obviously i was i was doing the tv show so that's why i couldn't podcast primarily but also i guess i was a little bit frustrated of like arguing about um theory sometimes like sometimes i gotta admit that kind of took a toll on me yeah um 
I, I really love talking to people that are doing like out there making a difference. I love that. So it gets me really excited to hear you talk about that. So give us an example of like some of the things that you you've worked on. So a lot of people think when we talk about conservation canines or uh, wildlife detection dogs that it's instantly crime, uh, wildlife crime detection. But as much as that is a big part of it, and I've done work in Central Africa working with ivory detection and um, products of animal origin detection, a lot of the work I've been trying to push primarily over here in the UK is using dogs for general wildlife detection and monitoring. So, for example, a lot of ecologists or a lot of conservationists to study an animal, a lot of the time they go out there and look for the animal's poo. So the animal's poo in this industry is known as scat. So I train scat detection dogs. So basically I work with a lot of poo and I talk a lot of poo, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so one of the the projects I did many years ago was pine martin scat detection. And that was because um, I'd seen a lot in the local papers that they thought that there might be pine martins over here near Shropshire where near where I am and so I contacted them and said you know can I have some pine martin poo sent to me to train my dog and they said oh well someone's done it in the office and it doesn't work and when I got a response like that, I had to kind of find a nice way to respond to say, well, I train explosive dogs for a living. I'm sure training a pine martin poo uh, dog is, is pretty easy. So they did send me some pine martin poo. And that was the start of my you know, obsession in pushing people to use dogs in wildlife. Because in the UK, we're really, really quite slow on the uptake of using dogs for conservation. Um, we, uh, like myself, I'm having to jump through hoops to try and get people to listen that the use of dogs, it's more cost efficient, it's more um, effective, it's faster method to use, and it's a, a greener um, a greener method also. So Pine Martin poo is one example. Another example is uh, water vole uh, poo and water vole burrows as well. So when people are doing their normal surveys, they normally look for latrines, water vole latrines. And so I was asked a couple of years ago by a, a wildlife trust locally, can I train a dog for that? So I did do. And we went out and showing them how quick a dog can find the water vole latrines and also the burrows. And recently that's taken me out working with uh, Natural Resources Wales working in a, an area where they've had a couple of sightings um, of waterfalls, but they need like accurate, uh, more um, animal feces as well as burrows. So we've been working alongside them as well. And then one of the big projects for the last couple of years um, was a hedgehog detection project with Henry, the, the awesome hedgehog dog. And um, that was to help with a better method of surveying for hedgehogs because one of the things is they're in a decline at the moment hedgehogs but there isn't any methods out there that's really really good at helping detect them especially when they're nesting so for example when construction's happening and areas are getting cleared land management you know is getting cleared these are when nests are, are really getting damaged and hedgehogs are getting damaged so we're trained a dog to help find hedgehogs whether it's in at night time when the hedgehogs are moving around to help with population counts or whether it's it's um, in the daytime when the hedgehogs are nesting to work out where they are. So if actually if it's a, an area that's going to uh, get cleared soon, that they can do something to help move them without them getting injured. So that's been a project I've been working with the British Hedgehog uh, Preservation Society and People's Trust for Endangered Species, as well as the hedgehog expert Lucy Berman-Brown and working at Hartbury University. And so I'm there again this week doing some more hedgehog searches as well. 
Yeah, it's so funny that, you know, you you said that about the Pine Martins, because I think like, especially as positive dog trainers, we're so used to being told that we can't do stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like everyone's always, you're, you're always getting told you can't do that. Oh, you yeah. Know? That's a that's a lifetime of getting told that. Yeah, I think that's where my my story began many years ago, over seventeen years ago, when I um, I'd done animal behaviour and welfare at university, and I wanted to work with the animals. I didn't think about working with dogs because I wanted to live in the jungle with chimps. Um, but a detection dog company had set up just down the road, and so I went. I said, "Can I come and have a chat with you?" And he said, "Yeah, not a problem." So I went down there. And the first thing he said is literally, you're female, you're not ex-military, you're not ex-police, you'll never be a dog handler. And (laughs) you know what, Nick? I hadn't ever thought about being a dog handler until he said that. (laughs) He said that. I've got four brothers and I'm quite used to getting told I can't do something. So as soon as he said that, I thought, I want to be a dog handler now. And um, yeah, I, I became a dog handler. And I think that's the same with the conservation. I was always doing my my explosive search was the first discipline I was trained for and then drug searches and we were taking these dogs into really you know sometimes dangerous environments working with them in kind of stressful situations for the dogs and then I was reading these research papers of dogs in America primarily and then Australia these dogs are helping with wildlife and conservation and finding, you know, cryptic animals. And um, and I thought, well, why aren't we doing it in the UK? Because we haven't really got any major risks in the UK. You know, when I worked in Montana, I helped with working dogs conservation in Montana. We had to have bear spray on us, you know, pepper spray on us for the bears. And we had to have bear bells um, and we had to say, hey, bear. And sorry, my Wigan accent says bear quite funny. But <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, and then we had to be careful of the wolves and then the wolverines. And then sure. thinking, wow, that like that's really exciting. Don't get me wrong. But then I was thinking, why don't we do it in the UK? Because we've not got this worry. And then everyone hates English weather or, or British weather. I live in Wales, so British weather. But um, but the thing is, with the UK, I love UK weather because it's great dog training weather usually. Um, I can go out in, in terms of detection and working a dog for long times. Usually that weather everyone hates is the weather that I love to go out and train in. So it's also really good for wildlife detection as well. So this is why I've really been trying to push for t- over 12 years now to use more dogs in wildlife and conservation in the UK. Well, when you say like it's good dog training weather, I think a lot of people will be like, well, hang on a minute. No, you know, so many people hate going out in the rain. I think especially if you're listening to this and you live in California, you know, the idea of going out and training your dog in the rain. I mean, you probably seem like a madman. Like, but when you say that, do you mean because it's good for like scent? Like it Um, keeps the scent more? Basically a bit of everything. So when you were working in Montana and the weather was getting really hot, we had to go out at 4am in the morning and do four hours of of, uh, uh, scat searches before it got too hot and we had to stay in the shade. So logistical, how you had to change your search to fit in with the hottest time of the day. And then also over here, we really have really, really extreme weather. Um, Yeah, I go out in the rain. I don't mind the rain. However, a lot of my wildlife projects, if we're looking for scat we actually don't go out in the rain looking for scat because the rain can actually compromise the dna on the scat and so as much as i quite like going out in the rain my skin's waterproof so i'm quite happy with that um it's not something we need to do a lot with the scat dogs however 
for a client that I've been helping for a few years with a great crested newt dog, that is the time we definitely have to go out and do our searches. So I said she's picked the worst um, operational deployment of a wildlife detection dog because she has to go out in the worst weather. She's obviously got loads of waterproofs on and she's handling a dog and you get really hot. And I say, and then you normally covered in mosquitoes because of the type of areas that you're working in as well so you have to be quite um okay with all your weather circumstances but hot weather is the worst weather to be working your dog in i suppose that applies to your dog training your pet dog training your operational dog training um and we need to reduce the time that we're out in that type of hot weather as well even though the scent picture is much bigger for the dog so if we're in a, in a location, the dog is probably going to find it much quicker. You've got a massive risk to the dog's welfare at that point as well. Okay, so that's really interesting. And the other thing I wanted to kind of jump back on, I feel like I'd be criminal if I didn't, is like, I, I'd love to dig a bit more into your story. Like you said, so, you know, this guy said to you, hey, you can't be a, you can't be a <laughs> dog handler. What was your next steps after that? You know, how did you go from that position to where you are now? I bugged him and bugged him and bugged him. So um, I think when I, when I was studying all behavioural welfare at uni, and one of the things was is the aspirations that you had to say work in the jungle or work in, you know with animals in conservation, you were always quite dampened unless you had a lot of money or had a family with a lot of money that could set you up doing voluntary work in the type of area you wanted. You didn't really have a chance. So at the time I was I was studying, but also working at a vodka um, a vodka bar. And to be honest, I don't even drink. I'm allergic to alcohol, so I was in this bar working with alcohol that like I was I knew I had to test the alcohol so I was always really quite ill when I was having to test the alcohol during the training and I was thinking what has my life become and so when I went to this uh, like a not an interview but a, a chat with this guy he said this and I said okay I said I just want to be around animals it's not about it's not about glory for me and it still isn't it's about being with animals and making a difference and because this gentleman had just set up this company he said well you can come and volunteer here so that's exactly what I did. I volunteered there. I had two jobs at the same time, carried on my studies and I made it. So he realized that he couldn't run the company without me. And it got to the point where we got an order for dogs to go to Saudi Arabia. And with the, the, the need of training dogs or detection dogs you really need more than one person there are a lot of errors come up when you're training the dog on your own without other people helping you whether it is delivery of the ball or delivery of the reward or placing out of the odors so um he hired me and i started um I did five months voluntarily at first, and then I started on a paid position as a kennel maid. I don't think you're legally allowed to say that anymore, but I was a kennel maid, and I loved it. I, I loved it, and the first time I ever trained a dog was training for explosive dogs because I'd never trained a dog. I'd had a staffy, um, and I love my dogs, but I never really trained her. <laughs> um, so all of a sudden, I'm training explosive dogs for Saudi Arabia. And then after that, we had other projects. And then before you know it, it was very close to the time when we had a lot of uh, terrorism in the UK. And so we had um, a big inquiry for dogs to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. And so ultimately, from one minute, he didn't need me to next minute. He really needed someone. I could take a quite low wage as well because I was desperate to get my foot in the door. And so that's how it all started. And 
even though it was a it was very low wage you know it was very hard to live by I was also trying to do dog walking and making crafts or anything to kind of get by the day I remember I just loved it I loved every second of training and being involved with these dogs um, and that's how I clawed my way up the company and in 12 years I was became head trainer and director of the company as well so oh and- wow yeah. yeah, what a turnaround. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, when you get that kind of rejection, you know, especially when someone's saying something from like a, a prejudice perspective, you know, I think the initial reaction is going to be a bit like, well, fuck you. I'm going to go somewhere else. Uh, you know, I, or whatever. I think, I think, I don't know, I can't speak for every female, but I, I do think a lot of females, you do get a lot of rejection generally, uh, especially if it's in a male-orientated role, and you do get rejection. And I've always been, because I've got four brothers, and my dad says, oh, you, 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 you don't want to do that, you're a girl. And I've always been like, why though? Yeah. you know why um, and so as soon as he said I can't be a dog handler that's exactly what I wanted to be and when he did say that I didn't say all oh, right I'm going to do it I just really all of a sudden had a like fire in my belly that I really want to be a dog handler now you know yeah. and luckily enough when he, he put a lot of training into me and guided me and I had the you know the working in that company I had the best 12 years of my life the places that I've been I've done operational explosive searches at Wembley I've done Farnborough Air Show Paris Air Show I was the first female cadaver dog handler trained in the UK I've done uh, millions of drug searches in in schools in nightclubs um um, and then I've done tobacco. We started the first tobacco detection dogs in the UK as well. And so I was doing tobacco, which was a, a new discipline of odour detection in the UK. So that was really good because with drugs, you, you do find a lot of drugs. But as much as people think um, you find them in really cool, hidey places, you don't really. Uh, or we really did. But then when we went to doing the tobacco searches, we really had some amazing concealment. So someone's literally really good at trying to conceal the tobacco. We've had pneumatic lifts coming out of the ground and you had to have a key fob to open. So my experience over that 12 years was was amazing. But I remember as soon as someone told me you couldn't do it or you were a girl and you couldn't do it or someone said to me once, isn't fly ball more your type of thing? You should be. Oh, my days. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah, and, uh, you know, physical, you had people making comments on your physical appearance as well. And it, it was constant. But you know what? It gives me fire in my belly when I get that. If you are going to get affected and... Um, you know, pushed away when you get given uh, like you can't do it or a negative comment. You you're not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere. You need to give that that needs to give you the fire in your belly, the push, and the yes, I will do it. You can make anything happen, but it takes a lot of hard work. And you know, I've sacrificed so much. I've sacrificed so much family time, so much relationships time to do what I wanted to do from my career point of view. But I also have had the best career i could have dreamed of well i mean that's that's such an inspirational story so i'm so glad that you shared that you know i think that a lot of people will probably feel be able to relate to that in some way especially people that are maybe at the start of their journey and you know maybe they've been told they can't do something for some reason you know it's just really nice to hear a story like that yeah what was the, what was the coolest consumer concealment that you that you found when you were doing all of that stuff <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Oh, when I sit down, I, I talk to my son, my, my five-year-old son, Cornelius, likes me to 
uh, tell him all the stories and sometimes he doesn't believe the stories I tell him. So some of the cool consumers, it was mostly tobacco, is um, we had like false walls that when you pressed a light switch, the wall actually moved away to the side. So behind the wall, there was like loads of fake cigarettes. Um, we had a magnetic button that was under the counter. So the dog was indicating and there was a big box of, sorry, I'm fighting my dog off. He was wanting my attention. <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, the, there was a box of tobacco underneath the tail and the dog went there, went past that and started banging on the wall behind it. And so we're like, no, there's something here. And the search teams that are with you always say, are you sure? Are you sure? So sometimes they go and get a sledgehammer in or a crowbar. So you, you have to be sure, you know. And I said, definitely sure. So we're they're trying to unscrew this board to work out what. And then there was literally a little light switch uh, next to the till. And as they pressed it, the wall fell off and it was attached by some magnets. So when they turned the button it like magnetic field or whatever and it, it came off um a pneumatic lift that came out of the the ground we've had a, a room i don't even know how they must have entered this room because it was fully plastered room and the dog could smell it through the wall um I mean, some amazing concealments. And it always made me laugh because I thought they've done, they've spent a lot of money, but they've never thought of the olfaction point of view. You know, they've never thought yeah. of that. Um, but well, sometimes you see like, you, well, I don't know, I guess it's part of like the law. Like you see... Um stuff on telly and in films where it's like hey i'm trying to put it within this bag and yeah. like i'm gonna surround it with like i don't know like they you know like it seems like sometimes at least on tv you see like an effort to conceal the odor yeah is that is that real or is that just well, fiction that's, that's what's funny because obviously working 17 years in in the substance detection still now even though i do i i primarily concentrate on conservation i still do substance detection internationally which can include mobile phone detection drug explosives body detection and um one thing that has made me realize that People don't necessarily conceal it as much as you think they would do. I have seen, so, and I've purchased certain concealment devices that you can find, you know, for training courses. that are. Oh, that's a great idea. And um, But then I, I see them and I think they're great in terms of putting it in something you wouldn't expect it to be there, but still not the olfaction point. Uh, you know, of how you can conceal of olfaction or try and reduce it for the dog or the, you know, the contamination. But one of the greatest things is when I used to work in high schools doing drug raids and I'd also do a demonstration, talk to the kids, make sure they weren't scared of the dog and everything. And then we'd do a question and answers and then we'd do a lineup of the children to make sure they didn't feel like it was a pressurized, you know, stressful situation. And a lot of the children would tell us where their parents hide their drugs. And I always Oh my days. <laughs> Wow. My dad hides his <laughs> oh, someone told me if we put it in our petrol tank you can't smell it. And I remember thinking we just used to take note of all these things because you know, different things are always tried and <laughs> so you know, putting drugs inside your your petrol tank, you know, that is something that happens. It happens with ivory as well. But the thing is you train for all those situations. And so the the thing is there's always contamination. There's always contamination. So um if you mind a really sealed an item so the smell inside is you know either smothered or inaccessible there's normally contamination from your hand and then you've normally touched something afterwards and then you've touched something else you've touched something else yeah sorry i lost you for a second there but you're just saying that you can 
you've never yeah. came across something that has caused, yeah, like you said, major issues with a dog finding it, no, right? No, no. A lot of people with the tobacco in storage units, we used to have to, you know, cover 300, 400 rooms of storage units, and we obviously didn't have access to the room, so we had to just smell at the bottom. Well, not me. The dog had to just smell at the bottom of the door. And a lot of the time, what people had tried to do is smother the odour and disguise the odour. So we had people put in uh, chilli pots open and air freshener, you know, the little uh, Christmas tree air fresheners, and and garlic, lots of garlic. And one of the things was, I remember if I was down an area and I started getting hungry because I could smell garlic and my dog was really earth and now it's here and someone's trying to disguise the odour. And the dog was always, always find it. And I always used to laugh and I was trying to speak to some scientists, you know, because I'm a practical dog handler. I get out, I've done the 17 years experience of, of the, 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 the history of training with dogs. And obviously science is a big part of how we change our training to adapt to the dog. Dogs, but in certain questions that I can't answer because I'm not the scientist, I, I spoke to a guy, Tom Brownlee, over in the States and said, look, you know, we have a lot of times where people try and smother the odour. And I know that from a molecular point of view, um, like tobacco odour can't bind to chilli powder odour because that, that can't happen. I said, but you talk about odours colliding in the air. If they're, you know, colliding and banging against each other, if you're putting odours in that area that are really smelly, isn't there a chance that, the, you know, you're going to bounce the tobacco odour close to the dog's nose? And he, he laughed and he said, yeah, I've never really thought of it in that, you know, from a molecular binding perspective, that can't happen. Because I always said when people try and smother the odour, it seems to get to the dog's nose much quicker. So they're just helping the dog a lot um i've never had a dog being really um upset by an odor that they put near but obviously people try and hide it with poison and everything um and that's why when you're training your detection dogs you need to make sure they do have a good call off as well you know you can call them off if need be or you know you can tell them to leave something if they need to leave something yeah no it's a really interesting obviously there's just so much like myths and things that people think about uh scent stuff you know like you always hear these stories of like you know um when someone's trying to run away from the police dog and the criminals think like oh if we get in the river then we lose the dog or if we climb a tree like yeah they, you know? yeah <laughs> I, you know what, I love it. I love sitting in a room where no one knows who I am and they don't know it. You know, I know anything about scent or detection. And I love hearing the conversations people have because I, the, the more people have these idiotic ideas, I'm not idiotic really, they're probably just less informed ideas, then the better it is for, for us in the detection world because we worked with the dogs 24-7. We know everything about the dog and we can read the dog. And obviously I have a lot of people saying, oh, you run through a river and you can't. And I said, well, no, that's, that's untrue. Um, uh, if people have ex experienced dogs that aren't detecting an odour in certain circumstances, that might just be because that dog hasn't been trained for that scenario. And that's why being an experienced trainer for detection is really important because you've come across every single scenario where someone's tried to hide something, conceal something, smother something, or even natural smother. I had Luna, who's trying to attack me at the moment, not attack me, she wants my attention obsessively. She um, once indicated on a big pile of pheasant poo, a massive pile. I mean, it was about 15 inches high and it was, it was peaked like little mountain so it was a massive pile and she indicated and um so i said she's indicating here and this she was uh, you know pine martin scat 
And I was in Ireland at the moment helping with a PhD study. And she said, oh, well, that's just pheasant poo. And I said, I know, but she works around pheasant. There's a pheasant breeding ground where I used to work. And so I said, so she's never been bothered by pheasant poo, you know. So the, the ecologist, thank goodness, got on hands and knees and searched through this big pile of pheasant poo. And on the bottom, there was a pine martin poo. And I had never trained for that. I had never trained for that. And so now... Yeah. You know, that happens a lot. You know, this is why we have a lot of DNA issues with the scats that the animals find because it's normally been sent back by another animal, you know. But that was amazing. I was so proud of, of Luna then because right underneath, her, you know, how many hundreds of pheasant poo, there was the pine martin poo. So that's why getting that experience from people that have, have seen it and been there, um, it makes you realize it's not just as simple as putting a dog on a target order. It's, it's just not just that simple. And it's not as a matter of, yeah, put it up the tree and the dog can't find it. You know, you train the dog to have the journey to the odor. It can find it pretty much everywhere you put it. Yeah, I remember listening to a talk by Susan Boulander on scent detection and all of that kind of stuff. And she was saying, you don't really train dogs to for scent detection you just kind of expose them to situations and they get more experienced and like that seems to be kind of what you're talking about right like it's the experience having the dogs experience these different types of searches yeah. so that they kind of can realize that's a possibility yeah because yeah i i agree there because a lot of people say well how do you train your dog for that and i say right look one of the things i've always i don't really class myself as a trainer even though I've been doing it for so many because I've got a dog and the natural ability is olfaction over 50% of their brain is dedicated to olfaction so what I do I just put all everything in the right order for them to adapt their already existing amazing um uh, ability and to line it up for them so we're focusing something that's already there and you know people say how do you train the dog to find an odor on the roof or on the ceiling I, I say well I've put it on the ceiling and let the dog investigate it and I think sometimes when I'm running my workshops people get involved too quickly and I say well no just let the dog the journey into that odor to work out where the scent picture starts and where the scent picture ends and they come out the scent picture and then they realize they've gone too far away and they work their way in and we we tend to inhibit our dog's natural curiosity and that's what I always get upset when I see a dog that it's it's in a way overtrained so it's overtrained waiting for a cue for everything where if you allow that dog to have that normal natural like organic journey to its own you really not really the trainer you're just kind of the, the 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 chauffeur for the dog to take the dog into all the different environments yeah so why did you shift from like i can tell from talking to you you're really passionate about all of that you know all of that uh well scent detection is a whole yeah. subject right so why did you shift from kind of doing explosives and drugs and all that stuff to primarily focusing on the conservation dogs so when when I start I joined the company you know uh, over 17 years ago now there was literally about three detection dog companies in the UK you know it was very early days for civilian detection dog companies and so we were lucky were the leaders in the in the area we did so many disciplines of different dogs and we got very big so we got big lots of dogs lots of handlers and it got to the point where it got so big and my life changed at that point. Um, I had the option to move to South Africa and start a family. Um, 
And so I did. I took my dogs, paid a lot of money to take my dogs over to South Africa. And I thought, you know what, maybe it's a, a new journey to, you know, working and being a director of like 30 to 40 staff members and a lot of ex-military and then being the head of like 60 dog section. It becomes quite hard because you're trying to make sure the welfare of each individual dog. And then it does become quite hard because you become... A um, bit much of a, a conveyor belt of, of dogs in and out and dogs working and you lose that, I don't know, the more um, personal effect. So I we moved to South Africa, realised that was a really bad mistake um, and came back to the UK and brought my son back over here. And so Cornelius, he was born in South Africa, brought him back over here, brought my dogs back over here and then was like, right, where do I start? So it was kind of things went wrong so I always say if I like to do something big I like to you know it's either big or go home even if that is messing up your life so given Hmm. that I had to say right okay well what do I do and I can go straight back into explosives drugs tobacco but then I thought well one of my passions has always been conservation and I'm still quite known in the area of conservation and using wildlife detection dogs and I thought well why don't I just put all my eggs in one basket and really push on promoting dogs in conservation in the UK. And I started Conservation Canine Consultancy. I got asked to do a lot of international workshops. Uh, and then literally before I knew it, I just it just snowballed. Um, a lot of people wanted workshops. So I set up a training school here in, in Wales as well. Um, and then got asked to do literally, I've got bases in France, in Belgium, in Germany. I was doing a lot of work in Italy. I go to Switzerland. I've did Denmark last year. Um, I meant to be going to Holland this year in Gran Canaria. So it, it, a lot of people wanted that internationally. And so then I was like, well, yeah, it, it worked. It was kind of like, thank goodness it worked. <laughs> so when people are coming to your workshops, like, uh, I know that indivi- people are individuals, right? But what, um, you know, what do their goals tend to be? What are they trying to get out of it? Are they trying to become their own conservation canine? Are they, uh, you know, start their own companies or is it just for fun or what's what's that about i offer a mixture i think at first i was aiming just at professional dog handlers or ecologists that wanted to move into the area of wildlife detection from a a professional point of view but then on some of those workshops a lot of people saying oh well have you ever done workshops for pet dog handlers and i was like well no because you know it's you know i'm the professional dog handler and i've never been a dog trainer for the pet dog world apart from years ago when we started doing um the kennel club good citizen dog scheme just on like a wednesday night during um yeah and so i said no because i didn't think you know my approach would be a they said you really need to do the pet world as well so then i started running some workshops so the way i train my pet dog clients to my work is exactly the same because i use an organic approach i look at the dog first i don't do any umbrella training i look at the dog and i tell you what your dog needs whether it's from a reward point of view whether it's from a handling point of view or even a target odor point of view a lot of people might come to a pet workshop and the dog's on a target odor which is quite offensive to the dog so we say okay that dog doesn't really like that and they might say well this is for competition i says yeah but your dog doesn't like like that so you know are we doing it for competition or for your dog and so luckily enough I um I got asked to do loads of pet workshops and luckily enough with the pet workshops even if you're a professional you want to come on it I can I do bespoke training for you 
as an individual on my workshop. So you can come and say, right, I'm an ecologist. I brought my dog today. I'm looking at training my dog for backcrackers. I can say, right, I can have a look at your dog, your dog whilst you're on this course as well. And then you might have the, another person that has the pet dog and they just want to build uh, confidence with their dog. Or you've got an overzealous dog or you've got a reactive dog. So it's an area that I never thought I'd expand into, to be honest, because I thought, well, no, I'll just stick to professional dog handlers, but then realise, well, actually, people still want the information I have, even if it's for the pet dog. Yeah, I think there's a huge appetite for, like, doing more with your dog. Like, I think there's a lot of people that are really interested in just doing stuff and especially like nowadays I think that people are thinking about hey I've got a spaniel I've got a labrador like I want to uh you know activate some of that yeah. kind of working instinct so obviously your company's called uh, conservation canine consultancy yeah. so what does that mean does that mean that you're kind of uh talking people through the the yeah. uh, situation or do you provide dogs or how does that work so, so for example, when the pet dog handlers come on my courses, I'm not training them on a target order for, for bat carcass, for example, because one of the things is a lot of people contact me continuously. Oh, I've got, as you said, I've got a really good springer. I'm, I'm tempted to maybe work in conservation. And, and so I have to instantly tell people, right, so one, there isn't necessarily at this moment an avenue for a career in this area of conservation in the UK yet because we're still, me and some other peers that are professional, still trying to convince the, the heads and the people that are in control of everything that it is a viable, effective and legitimate method. So we try and like kind of really not promote a pet dog handler to go out and try and do some conservation work round the corner on their own back because all that it takes is one bad story of a dog picking up a hedgehog for example or you know a, a dog eating a bat carcass that makes all my 17 years of legitimate work trying to really prove this is a method go down the drain because someone and I have it said to me now someone said oh Dormouse nest dogs don't work, do they? Because someone tried. And I went, whoa, whoa. I said, yeah, they do. I did the first pilot study for a Dormouse nest dog here with Cheshire Wildlife Trust, and it does work. So to say it doesn't work, I said, how how come you think that? Oh, well, someone, an ecologist had tried it with their pet dog and it hadn't worked. And I was like, isn't it crazy that, okay, it didn't work with their one dog. Instead of thinking, oh, I didn't do the training right, they <laughs> yeah. that method doesn't work. So I definitely... So silly. Yeah, I don't promote pet dog animals just to go out and say, right, that's what I want to be. I try to lead people on the realistic approach of where they can be. So I, I get a lot of ecologists or conservationists that they're already in the role of conservation or surveying wildlife. So they might be uh, do back carcass searches on a wind turbine site, for example. And they might say, right, I already do this as my job. I wanted to add a dog to my kind of toolbox to help with my project. And I'll go, right, okay, they've got a viable and legitimate route into it. If I did courses, which I could do tomorrow, and I had hundreds of people on a course every week, I could be making millions. What you're doing, you're flushing the industry with people that, one, can't get a job or can't even get um, a role in doing this, even on a voluntary point of view. And I think, in a way, it's giving people the wrong impression. It'd be, tra it'd be training these people and it'd be a money making scheme. It's not about money making. I work with people that have got a direct connection and a realistic point where they're going to be able to be a dog handler. 
uh, or a wildlife dog handler. And the thing is, because you need licensing, you need to have the right backing from the right organisations. You need to have peers that are promoting the use of it. Where if someone goes out and they haven't got licensing, they don't know anything about the kind of survey methods or, um, you know, or, or biodiversity or conservation, and they just go out blind, it can be really, really, really bad for people that are trying to legitimise it. Mm. Uh, and so I do mentoring at the moment because I have a lot of people and as I say I always say everything's possible so I'd never say to people it's not possible but we need to have a really realistic route of how we're going to go about it people say right I'm going to make a career and money out of it I say okay that's not going to happen <laughs> yeah trust me <laughs> I do this for a living luckily enough my my workshops and my seminars and my talks and things like that has been able to get me the income which I need to live and feed my child however when I'm trying to promote the use of dogs for wildlife detection I either have to do it at cost where they're just paying for, uh, you know, costing of the travel of the, the maybe some of the dog training. But it's very rare that people have money that want to pay for the actual search. So this is this yeah, this is kind of like uh, crazy to me. So, yeah. Because I'm a bit confused though, because you said that obviously it sounds like you're saying that hey, there isn't a huge amount of demand for this right now because, like in the UK at least, we're kind of slow to adopt it as a viable strategy. But I thought you were saying that you had a company that you were employing quite a lot of people to do this, or is so? I'm I'm a bit lost. No, no. So yeah. So basically, uh, for example, we got hired to do bat and bird carcass searches uh, on wind turbine sites. So the searches have to be done, and normally they do it uh, manually. You know, uh, a person goes and searches. So for certain projects or certain organisations, will say we want dogs on this project. So they said, right, we need dogs. So my partner's uh, one of my dog handlers as well, and then I've got a colleague of mine, but she works for a water company. She does great crested newt detection, but she's already an ecologist. I've got another girl that's come training with me, but she works for Natural Resources Wales, and she's trying to get into the industry. In terms of paid work, the commercial opportunity is bat and bird carcasses you know because wind turbine sites that's the com probably the most commercial opportunity to get into the role which is also seasonal it's only certain uh, times of year that this happens and it might be you might have two searches a week on a wind turbine site unless you've got lots of wind turbine sites to do so for example for great crested newt searches this is something we're trying to promote the use of great crested newt dogs but because the dogs are not only finding great crested newts that are on the surface of the ground, they're also finding them underground. And it's how do you prove the dog is detecting a newt that's a metre or two metres underground? So one of my clients, she's an ecologist, she already does great crested newt searches in her role. So she said, I want to add a dog to my role. So she is doing that, but then she's realised, wow, it's so hard to get this dog attached to my role. So now she's having to do um, uh, a master's and, and research to prove the dog can do it, to prove that it's legitimate to use on her sites. Um, so your, so with your previous company, uh, was that you, were you saying there's a much more demand for like the explosives? Oh yes, yes. So that yeah, that was different world. Yeah. So your contraband detection. So obviously this was before COVID as well, and I know that's had a massive effect on on. So you had drug searches at nightclubs. No nightclubs are happening. No no pubs are open. So tobacco searches all around the whole of the UK. Huge. Um, clandestine detection working over in france on uh, illegal immigrant detection on border control uh, See, that's, but like that's interesting because i think like 
as someone that's naive, you kind of just assume that that all of that is undertaken by the police or yeah. border control. Or yeah, but then we have to remember everything's becoming privatized, isn't it? And so many years ago, back in two thousand and eight, we got asked to tender for um, when I'm in my previous company, uh, tender for. Uh, work at the UK Border Force for providing body detection dogs and so you're tendering for something that's never been done before you don't know how you're going to do it and I remember when we we won that tender I got given the task of training 30 dogs to find illegal immigrants on the back of a vehicle I was like okay I've, I've been training dogs for explosives and drugs and I've never really done this so where do we start so yeah and that's uh, you know when someone comes to me and says I want to be a dog handler if I say you want to be a dogger I can give you many routes to apply to be a dog handler there is ma many training courses that you can be a drugs dog handler tobacco dog handler explosive dog handler or, or you know body detection dog handler and you get deployed the thing is that's not something monday to friday five, nine till five you know that is deployment that is going away from your family from your home it doesn't always fit in with people's um lifestyle you know especially drugs work that you're normally working every hour God sends and it's normally in the middle of the night. So, so that's why a lot of people contact me and says, oh, I really love walking my dog in the fields. I want to do conservation dog work. And that's why I'm like, you know, it would be great if I could get paid to go out every day and be paid to find pine martins, hedgehogs, um, you know, dormouse nests, water voles. But that work is very rare and in between. Um, and so that's where if an ecologist says, right, I want you to train me and my dog, they're already employed to do water vole searches they can then say to their client, right, I'm already a water vole surveyor. I can add a dog to my survey team now. It, they've already got that foot in the door. But someone that has no background in conservation or ecology or even dog handling, they have to start right at the bottom. And that's where it's absolutely I, – I wouldn't know where to start now. If I join this industry now, I'm just so lucky 17 years ago of how it panned out for me. I wouldn't know where to start now if I was honest. Oh wow, yeah, that's a little bit doom and gloom for people that are listening to this. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to end it on that. No, definitely not, because it is. That's the thing. There is, there's lots of avenues to go, but where are you going to end up is different. In terms of what you first thing you need to do, like anything working with dogs, is you need to get experience. You need to get experience and get training and get mentoring, and that's what I gained because everyone told me dogs for conservation is not going to work. No one will do it. It's not going to work. A lot of people said it's not going to make money, which, yeah, I probably agree with that. That's not going to make money. But what I did, I paid to go to Montana to work with Working Dogs Conservation. I paid to to help with them. I wanted to see how they do it. I contacted people in Argentina, contacted people all over the world, tried to build up some, you know, a, rep you know, to, a, a reputation to and a, and a relationship so they could give any advice but then it's hard because they're in a different country so in america for example i've got one uh, friend who's over in america and he said it's different over there because they might just get a call that okay this species we're gonna there's loads of funding available for this species can anyone help with this animal so you could you could contact them and say, right, I've got a fencing company. We can help with this or this. Or you could say, right, I train detection dogs. We can help by finding this species using dogs. And you say, right, you've got the grants. You've got the money. But in the UK, oh, it's just a different world entirely. Why so, do you think that is? Like, why, why is the attitude so different 
we don't have the donor schemes that they have over there. They get a lot of money ploughed in by either local people as well as, you know, different organisations. But I don't. we just don't seem to have it. And then the work I was doing with Pine Martin in Shropshire, we were doing it for a long time. And really, um, any money that I was getting, it was just for cost. You know, obviously, I was having to drive a couple of hours to get there. And um, I was like doing a couple of searches, really enjoying it, doing really um, long hours. But then as soon as we had confirmation of Pine Martins in the in the area, so we had the Luna went into the area and got really excited, but we couldn't find any actual proof of Pine Martin poo. And so I said, she's, she's really active in this area. And he said, but this isn't a normal habitat. And I said, I know, but she's going crazy. So what they did, they put up camera traps in this area. And due to those camera traps, they were able to find the first breeding um, uh, breeding population of pine martins in Shropshire. And so that was from over 100 years they've not been in that area. And then all of a sudden they are. And as soon as they confirmed their presence, the funding for that work went, it went, the funding went. And I was like, wow, does that really happen? And so, you know, it is hard with the hedgehog work I'm doing. Luckily enough, I'm working with Hartbury University. She's got funding to do research papers. So she's she's just one paper's just been released. and We're doing another one now. And so the money that's paying for me to do these searches is part of her research grant. And oh, OK, that's what because that's where I was kind of getting at. Like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out who pays for yeah conservation dogs and i guess in the uk is a case of no one <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's sad and this is why we're trying to you know it's different if you already survey this species if you already do it you have got a foot in the door and i would say if you're already doing it add a dog to your toolbox that is brilliant wonderful if you're then trying to enter the field blind and say right what should i search for i'm like well so right, what you're going to search for who's going to employ you who's going to ask you to search for why are they okay. going to search for it so, so just to just to like try and give some like practical advice to people here so it sounds like what you're saying is if you want to get into this field obviously it sounds like a much more viable way of doing that is getting into like explosives or drugs or tobacco or whatever but if i guess if you're really interested in conservation you want to team up with like an ecologist or get yourself yeah. in those circles right definitely definitely and that's someone i said to recently really really enthusiastic person really wants to do it. I said, okay, well, if I was doing it now, what I would do, I would con con um, contact my local ecologists or land management people. So for example, there's a land management company around the road, down the road for me and they said, I don't want you to just come on my land and help remove great crazy new i want you to get rid of any amphibian if we're going to damage this land by preparing it for building we want to make sure we remove all the animals if you can find a really compassionate and empathetic organization that say yeah we would hire you to help removal of this or help removal of that or even you know invasive detection is that that pays because people you, you you're more likely to get paid to help stop an invasive species than you are to actually help protect an endangered species that's the sad sure. thing about it but yeah i would contact ecologists speak to them about how they would like the use of a dog but i mean today i've had three to four emails of ecologists that want to use dogs in their field already so that's what well that's 
that's a really good sign right like yeah. the interest is growing yeah the interest is growing the realizing its possibility i i still need people to realize the amount of investment they have to put into it you know um the the lady nikki glover who trains freya uh, for wessex water for great crested newt she's been doing it for, and she says wow i probably didn't know how much investment financial and training it would take because she i've never known anyone as hard working as this girl and i say she has to jump through hoops to really promote the use of great crested newt detection dogs and luckily enough wessex water are 100 behind her and they really promote it and utilize her which is uh, that is the most perfect scenario you could have but if someone down the road has been a dog trainer and they say but i want to do conservation stuff now i say well that's where it's it's hard so i'm trying to set up a network where people i'm doing my running my courses and my handler courses and different courses and sometimes there might be a requirement all of a sudden you get a requirement and you might need so, uh, so many bat carcass detection dog teams and i can't be everywhere all at once obviously it was hard for us to pin down this podcast so normally for me to get out and um do a last minute bat and bird carcass survey so i'm trying to get it so i've got a list of of um reputable and good handlers that i've had on my training courses that i can say right well i can rely i would rely on these because that's how people start with my past company i say you know sometimes they did a course with that company and then when jobs came up available you're like well they did that course with them they were really good so i always say it's trying to get into that world and it's not about who you know it's about how good you are and how invested you are as a as a dog handler really um and so on my courses you can come on a dog handler course and handle many of my detection dogs so a pine martin scat dog a hedgehog detection dog a waterfall scat dog a um biosecurity so recent work we were doing biosecurity vermin detection on vessels that were heading to south georgia so for me working in the wilderness in the beautiful forest and then all of a sudden we're in the in the in a huge uh, vessel searching for vermin signs so that took a, a massive turn for me from my environmental training from my dogs and but if you have people you know that you would trust when those jobs come in you have them available and so on my courses i wanted to give someone the best opportunity to see what they'd like because everyone wants to be a dog handler but when you really get pushed you might think oh well actually i'm not sure i would like this <laughs> at the end of the day so on the courses you can handle a malinois a labrador springers cockers you know mixed and you work in five days a week really searching for everything because then you might say well actually what would suit me say if you're an ecologist what would suit me is that water of all surveys because i can imagine i can do that where the other searches might not be my type of cup of tea um, sure. And 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 trying to give people an option to start somewhere. I would say we always need to start somewhere. So when you're like you spoke about having to kind of fulfill these, uh, I can't remember the word you use, but kind of like orders, right? Where people say, "Hey, like I need thirty dogs or twenty dogs yeah. or whatever." Where do you get dogs from? Like, are you looking for like really particular uh, genetics, like working line dogs? Are you going through rescue centers? Like, what? How are you doing that? Oh yeah, so years ago when we used to get big tenders for like the 30 dogs and it's something that i probably wouldn't do now because i don't like the idea of, of sending off 10 20 dogs somewhere I, i'm I, i've done i sent a lot of dogs to iraq afghanistan and i probably wouldn't want to be in that situation again um but if i got people uh I've got a project i need some more dogs so i get all my dogs from rescue centers i uh, 
um, kind of promote the use of rescue dogs. And the reason for that, it's not that I'm kind of against breeding, you know, breeders or anything. It's that a lot of the dogs that end up in rescues are really awesome for detection because some dogs have been loved all their life and then got to two years old and they've got too much energy for them, family circumstances. You know, they're crazy for the ball. They rip the sofa because the ball went under the sofa. You know, they've got this amount of energy that doesn't stop. They just don't make a good pet. And that's the thing. I've got 10 of these that don't make a good pet so you can imagine how mental i am because i i I, I was curious about that yeah because it's like i wanted that's what i was getting at like how viable is rescue for this kind of stuff because you know i think we've all seen like those you see those videos online of like working line spaniels working line malinois you know and they're just like a different breed you know it's just unbelievable um and then so i'm just curious like how viable is it to get these dogs from rescue and if you are doing that maybe because your like ethical compass you know pushes you in that direction are you sacrificing a bit of you know efficiency oh i probably not sacrificing efficiency because say if i got a puppy now and i'm gonna invest time in that puppy straight away i would let the dog first out with puppy training i just let the dog be a puppy and a dog before i do any intensive search or detection training but say you have to wait till at least 16 months before you can really push that dog physically for detection and search so i have to invest 14 months of time money feeding that dog before i even know if that dog's going to be any good for a role where if i'm looking for okay let's think um let me think of a project so hedgehog dog no i've got oh it's hard i've got a project but i'm not allowed to talk about it yet so So if I'm looking for a project to search a huge forest for a target odour, for a small target odour, I need a dog with a big ranging ability. So a dog that's fast and covers a lot of area quite well. I won't know a, a puppy if that dog's going to be that type of dog when it's 14 weeks old, uh, fourteen months old. And plus, I've had dogs where, you know, get to 14 months old, they don't want to do it. That's not their cup of tea. That's not what they want to do. And you can get good breeding lines and say, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the mum and dad was really good. But it doesn't really matter because it's something like seven generations of really good mum and dad before you can definitely say that dog is going to be really good. You know, breeding schemes and the police, I think the Malinois breeding schemes is one of the best ones. Um, obviously, it was years ago I last knew the um, the percentage, but something like 96% for, for Malinois breeding schemes, but something like 50% for Springers and Labradors. Um, and so I was. We always thought, well, fifty percent of that litter is going to end up going in a pet home. So I think, well, you know what? It, it's something that I do. If someone has a dog that actually it's not suiting the home environment, it really likes a ball or a toy, or it's really motivated to 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 do something that can be a really good working dog for me and yeah i probably i don't compromise efficiency i definitely compromise sanity because <laughs> not kennel dogs either because after being in a situation where we had lots of kennel dogs we had lots of kennel stress we had lots of anxiety lots of issues lots of stereotypies i didn't like it and so now they're all house dogs as much as that sounds mental but when people say oh i want my working dog to then be my pet dog at home i say no you have to compromise you if you want that dog who's a really good house dog a really good dog that you can take into your local cafe obviously when we're allowed to be in a cafe um that dog it will it will compromise that dog's working ability that working really ability. that's interesting so you're <laughs> saying that actually it's, yeah. it's better to keep them in a kennel in terms of it makes them better search dogs. Mm-hmm. 
no, not not in a kennel. No, uh, not in a kennel. The, the old saying was, "Keep a dog away from all the stimulus." It, like, it, like I remember not being allowed to put any toys or enrichment in a dog's kennel. So they said it'd be better when it came out, and I said that's completely wrong. That is the the welfare of the dog compromised. So, no, what I was saying is. If we expect this dog to be that polite dog that stays by your side in the cafe, that doesn't jump on the table, that does this, but then when you want that dog to work, search, jump everywhere. Like Got have- it. Oh, okay, I see. Right, so you're saying, yeah. hey, have them at home from a welfare perspective. Yeah. Uh, but but just be aware that you've got a working dog, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, uh, for example, the issues that I've found with is people have taken the they wanted the dog to be a working dog and they've taken that dog to the beach and made the dog dig on the grass or on the sand. And I said, oh, no, you can't do that. But then found that they were doing that repetitively. So now when the dog got to target odor, it started digging. And the problem is with the target odor, it was kind of endangered. So therefore, you couldn't do any digging. So I said, well, that trip, that stuff that you've done for the dog in the pet world is now overlapped here on this. Or, for example, taking your dog and throwing the dog the ball for the dog in the field repetitively. So next time you take the dog to the field, it's barking at you saying, hey, throw the ball, throw the ball. Then your dog's not wanting to move away from you to search because it knows you've got the ball in its pocket. Or a lot of training where it's treat to mouth, treat to mouth, treat to mouth. Soon as you ask your dog to search in a certain area the dog's licking your fingers to say hey where's my treat so it's hard because i obviously have my dogs as my like my companions and my working dogs but i don't follow those typical paths of a lot of pet dog trainers i don't ask for ultimate impulse control you know my dogs jump in my van if i open the kennel doors they'll, they'll jump out if they want to i can ask them to wait but sometimes we put a lot of impulse control on the dog it doesn't get out the van until it's been asked to get out the van it doesn't search that tree until it's been asked to search that tree so it can generally stop that dog just being that dog we want that dog to be a nice curious dog had a nice ranging ability have confidence to do it but still checking with you that you're part of that team but that's where it's it's a it's a really it's a fine line sometimes you can have that dog which is the most ultimate pet dog trained to every pet dog thing you want and then the ultimate working dog as well but because they're so rowing in between if someone's really wanting to use a dog for working i say well you've got to have to compromise some of your expectations of what you want from a pet dog um in terms of the the things that we ask from that dog target training i've seen target training causing loads of problems in my operational dog teams that come for for ct with me continuation training i'll say have you been doing C- uh, targeting and i go yeah and i say i can tell now because when the dog gets the odor in its nose it started targeting on on things that aren't the odor um or platforming when people are doing the platforming i can tell when they're trying to make the dog search boxes and the dog starts trying to stand on the box instead right and- sure as much as it's beautiful and lovely to see, it does, it can kind of confuse the dog. And it's not the dog isn't capable of doing that. It's that as humans, we're really inconsistent with our training. Yeah, so, no, that totally makes sense. And so in terms of breeds, everyone always, I, I think sometimes we overinflate the importance of breeds, but like, I know that everyone is always wondering, you know, what kind of breeds do you use uh for this kind of work actually interestingly enough when i had rob hewings on um who's also involved in scent work you know rob um he said that one of the biggest surprises for him when he started doing scent work workshops because i asked him the same question he said rottweilers were were surprisingly good Um, so i'm just curious have you have have you noticed any patterns any dogs that you particularly like to work with uh what your thoughts are on breed 
Well, it's it, it. One of the good things is because of my background of where I worked, we I worked with hundreds of dogs. So I weren't in the police force where you get given one dog to work with, and then after that dog passes away, you get another dog. So you might have had three dogs in working. I've had hundreds and hundreds, and so I've worked with Rottweilers. I know a friend that was working with Rottweilers for conservation work over in Spain, um, and I think they were used a lot anyway. Rottweilers were used. I'm trying to think now uh, for 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 an olfaction based detection services. I'm trying to think, but. Um, um, sorry, like my Luna's just crying at the door. Um, but in terms of dogs that have really surprised me, from an operational point of view, I use your typical, your Labradors, your Springers, your Cockers. I've got a Malinois, but that wasn't because I wanted one. That was because she was a rescue and um, I was worried where she might end up, if I'm honest. And mixed breeds, mixed breeds, you know, a nice mongrel. It doesn't need to be a designer breed. A nice mongrel of the right characteristics and the right, right working ethics is perfect. But I remember from the scent, pet, the, the scent of the, the pet works, uh, the pet scent work even one of the things that I love seeing is when I'm seeing certain breeds that you wouldn't necessarily associate with scent work and it was a King Charles Spaniel and it had a really kind of very short nose and it was blind and it was deaf and I remember thinking wow yeah. this is going to be a challenge you know how are we going to do with this and I remember she was absolute and it was when I was working with IMDT actually it was on one of the courses down in Enfield and the the dog came on the course and I remember because she was so happy such a happy dog and I put the order out and obviously that was instant there was no visuals attached to it there was nothing else it was literally she was using her nose and when she got to the odor we had to go and I think it was treat rewards but also we had to add the cognitive value of touch to her we had to stroke her to make her realize how because normally we applaud the dogs and say wow that's amazing but we couldn't do any of that and so so I had to whisper on her ears because I wanted her to feel my breath on her and touch her. And I remember feeling how much excitement she had for that that work. And I was like, this is just amazing. So she really surprised me. But I've worked with Miniature Daxons over in South Africa um, on we were training for cheetah scat detection. And the dogs that she had, she had a Vimarana, a pointer, and well, I think a Vimarana and a pointer. And I thought, right, you've got some good good working breeds there they, you know they should be good to train the Vimarana was obsessed with looking for lizards on the the rock piles the the pointer just wanted to sunbathe so we're only left with a miniature dachshund and I was like oh my my professional street cred will go out the window my boss will go mad if he sees me training a dachshund so literally we trained her and she was amazing she was a pocket rocket the only thing is physicality she didn't have the right because the thorns in South Africa were working were bigger than her body, which it would skewer her straight through. So we had to bring targets to her. But I remember thinking, it's not necessarily about the breed, it's about the character, you know, and it's about the physicality as well. Sometimes I've met dogs that would have a brilliant working potential, but physicality they couldn't. So why the really short legs or body really close to the ground, or you know, you'd have to hold them and use them like a hoover to smell anything, you know. So you <laughs> You have to think about the welfare, of the, especially from a working point of view. And this is what I have to say to a lot of my clients. They might say, oh, my dog's had an injury and can't do agility anymore. I'm wondering about doing dogs for conservation. I say, well, hang on a minute. This, these dogs do more than dogs for agility. They do crazy work. So the welfare, they need to be a really fit dog and physically able to navigate their environment yeah, when I, I mean, I've messed around with scent work a little bit and I've done a lot of tracking with uh, pet dogs and th the ones that 
I found to be really uh, always very game is like terriers. Yeah. I, I find that terriers, um, you know, I've seen so many terriers that are like obsessed with chasing squirrels and, uh, you know, they're already kind of hunting things. And then yeah. oftentimes they really seem to click with the game quite quickly. Yeah, and, and that's another thing. You've got the the, the predatory um, type. Of, when we years ago, when we talked about drive, we talked about predatory drive or prey drive, and that's not necessarily what we're working with with wildlife because we don't really want to tap no. in dogs' predatory drive. So, someone sure. said dogs really good at finding vermin in the field. Would it make a good search dog? I said probably not, to be honest, because it's self rewarding itself by searching for the vermin, and now it's got the predatory, you know, hunt behind it. And that's what we don't want. And we kind of, there's certain dogs that get it straight away, as you say. Or if I can tap into the focus of what they're interested in, you know, and you can use scent work to help desensitize dogs from squirrels or from hunting. You can do cooperative hunting using scent work and treats and, and odor, which is awesome for dogs. But in terms of for wildlife detection, we really need a dog that doesn't chase anything. It has to really not chase anything. And people say, don't you just utilize the natural intake? I went, no, because if we're on a nature reserve and we've got people watching us to sit and our dog is chasing birds and squirrels and um, it just isn't isn't a good look at all. So all of our dogs don't chase any animals. And if we have got a dog that's got predatory instinct like that, we have to really try and stop the dog needing that. So we'll have to look at his like brain and say, right, why is he doing that? Let's see if we can use scent work and play and treats to actually stop him being obsessed in that but that's where scent work whether it's for professional or pet it's just so important for the dog's welfare and the well-being the dogs are so much more content after doing scent work even if it's just for five minutes at home um, and that's what years i was trying to contact rescues and say this was talking like years and years ago before scent work was a big thing that it is now i'd say you know about scent work and it just used to get no you know who hard and stuff and I remember thinking, why aren't we doing scent work to rehabilitate dogs in rescues then? Or why aren't we doing it for pets? And obviously in the last five, seven years, it's become quite big. Um, but before then, it's been around before then. So it's been important before then. So it's great to see so many dogs, dog training schools and scent work happening now. Yeah, I think for you know the large majority of dogs, it's the most effective method of enrichment uh, from yeah. what I've seen. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it's been really fantastic talking to you, Louise. So uh, where can people find out more about conservation canines and, and all of that kind of stuff? So, yeah, they can uh, find me on Facebook. I'm also on your Instagram, on your Twitter, on all the LinkedIn and everything. But, yeah, you can always drop me an email down at, um, on the Facebook Conservation Canine Consultancy page where I try and update it quite regularly. Uh, I have got a web page as well. Uh, my Facebook page is probably more updated than uh, my web page, but all the information information is on either and just pop me an email no problem all right brilliant well thanks so much for coming on louise i'm so glad that we finally got an opportunity to record this podcast yeah thank you so much for asking me and thank you for pestering me and trying to sort, sort me out to get on and i'm really glad we finally got to speak it's wonderful Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. It was really fun speaking to Louise. Don't forget to tag us on your Instagram stories. Share this podcast uh, onto your IG stories. We'd really, really appreciate that. It's a really great way of spreading the message about this podcast. And of course, you can ask me a question to be answered on the podcast by going to www.speakpipe.com slash Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you on the next podcast.